You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Four stillbirths in women with mild or moderate symptoms of COVID-19 were highlighted by the Deputy CMO, Dr Ronan Lynn, yesterday. These were preliminary reports, but the stillbirths could potentially be associated with a condition called COVID placentitis. Dr Ronan Lynn urged caution as the coroners have not concluded their findings. The HSE's National Women and Infants Programme is aware of and is monitoring the situation and has issued a related notice to obstetric departments. Professor Keelan O'Donoghue is a consultant obstetrician at Cork University Maternity Hospital. Professor O'Donoghue, good morning. Good morning, Mary. Now, now Dr. Ronan Lynn uh, said this condition, it's a concern, but he did stress that it's very rare. Have you seen cases of COVID placentitis? Uh, What is it? So I suppose, Mary, I'd first like to acknowledge that stillbirth is a devastating outcome of pregnancy for the parents and family involved. And we don't know the personal stories at the heart of this report. And we do need to acknowledge the grief of these families as we talk about them speculatively on on national media. And what we know so far, and I haven't been directly involved in these cases, but have some experience from a case we've had in Cork and from my knowledge of the international literature, is that we have four cases of stillbirth from about 24 weeks onwards where women were symptomatic in three of the four cases, but not critically unwell. They had all had recent COVID within two to three weeks and in some cases presented feeling a change in in fetal movements. These babies, as far from what we know, were normally grown and the pathologists have found evidence of very similar placental disease in all floor that can be linked to the direct effects of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 infection. And as you say, some of these cases are still under investigation by the coroners in, involved, but pathology are also uh, collaborating to, to verify their findings. We have, in Cork, reported one case in the literature early this year, and in that case there was a good outcome for mother and baby, but we found a very abnormal placenta with these findings and our perinatal pathology team undertook a review of the international literature when we had our case and there were lots of placental reports towards the end of last year um, showing lots of different types of findings in women who had mild, moderate and very severe illness and there wasn't a huge amount of detailed perinatal pathology maybe done um, all throughout last year. But our review showed that our case could be backed up by the literature with a small number, maybe about 11 other cases at that time. But it's important to say that represents about 4% of all of the, the placental reports that were in the literature at that stage. So what we're talking about seems to be a, a form of placental disease, a specific type of inflammation caused by the virus. And you can see it in the cells of the placenta And this seems to represent a true placentitis or inflammation or infection of the placenta caused by SARS-CoV-2. This is, as you well know, hugely worrying for women who are pregnant or women who may even be considering uh, becoming pregnant and their families. at, at what stage, and I know the science is still very early, but at what stage is it presenting in the pregnancy? Well, the cases that we've seen in the literature do seem to be from 24 weeks onwards. And it's fair to say that while women in, in who have COVID-19 infection largely have a mild illness, some of the more severe illnesses do seem to be towards the third trimester of pregnancy. But I would 
emphasise that this does appear to be an uncommon, albeit distinctive complication of maternal COVID-19 infection, which has the, placent- which has the potential to cause this significant placental injury. On the whole, women who get COVID-19 infection from what we now know one year later largely have a mild or moderate illness. Less than 10% seem to be admitted to pregnancy. And while a small proportion do become critically unwell, um, the the majority of maternal and, and neonatal or baby outcomes are reassuring. Ireland's experience with COVID in pregnancy has been reasonably reassuring and in line with most other European countries in terms of what has been reported. And I'm sure in your practice you've had many successful deliveries uh, of women as well who have had COVID during pregnancy. Absolutely. Um, Certainly by the end of last year, there was about over 450 pregnancies reported to the HPSC um, where where there was a positive um, COVID COVID test. And in Ireland, uh, while our outcomes have not been officially reported, as I said, they're they're in line with other European countries. A very small number of women becoming, becoming critically unwell, but no maternal deaths in this country. It's important to say, Mary, that obviously the, the stillbirth as an outcome has been researched as a consequence of, of COVID-19. And while there were one or two small hospital reports in the middle of last year suggesting there might be an increase in stillbirths, that has largely been refuted by bigger studies. And we now, one year on, have really big registry data internationally. We have really good surveillance data from the UK, from the CDC, and some very large studies being published not showing any change in stillbirth rates overall uh, through the COVID pandemic, comparing women in pregnancy with COVID to those not with COVID and really big numbers and these studies have been also subject to systematic reviews which do agree with these data so that's reassuring. Yeah and that is the very important factual information Uh, but but in terms of advice now for women considering becoming pregnant, trying to become pregnant, women who are already pregnant, uh, living in, in a pandemic, what is the advice to them? Sure, and we have to acknowledge it's pretty scary for pregnant women hearing about this. This is a rare complication from what we know, and we're still investigating. What we could have here is a cluster by complete chance. Um, and for the advice for pregnant women, obviously, is at a very simple level, try not to get COVID. Um, secondly, that, that vaccination should be considered, and for those in priority groups, it is being made available, irrespective of pregnancy. We're getting more information about vaccine all the time in terms of its safety from the countries where it started earlier, and that's promising. And obviously, community vaccination will be protective for pregnant women. For those who have COVID, it's really important that their healthcare providers know and that women attend their visits as normal. We all have COVID pathways now in the hospitals. Women shouldn't be afraid to attend hospital and they should speak up if they have any concerns about fetal well-being, you know, if they experience reduced movements. We should assess women who've had COVID a minimum of 14 days after their infection and undertake, you know, ultrasound to check fetal well-being. And women should certainly not ignore any signs of concerns that they might have and should be listened to when they present to the maternity hospitals. And I suppose the purpose of putting this out to the maternity hospitals is to make sure that this is on the radar and that um, people know about it. And some of these women might need to be admitted for further surveillance for their pregnancy. All right, for now we leave it there. Professor Keelan O'Donoghue from Cork University Maternity Hospital. Thank you. 
Bank of Ireland is closing 88 branches here as well as a further 15 in Northern Ireland. It made the announcement as it published its full year results this morning. Francesca McDonough is Chief Executive of Bank of Ireland. You're announcing the locations later this morning, Francesca. Are they predominantly rural or urban locations, can you tell us? And do they roughly correspond to the ones that were closed temporarily during the pandemic? Hi, good morning, Brian. So we will be announcing at 10 o'clock. We wanted to tell all of our colleagues first. There's about 200 people um, that work in those 88 branches who are impacted. It is, it is reasonably well spread. Um, it includes Dublin as well. Um, and when we've looked at branches, it really is about the tipping point in customer demand. Um, customers are telling us very loudly and clearly they want more digital and fewer branches. So um, that's why we're closing um, those locations. And we're not closing them until September. So we're giving six months advance warning plus... So Uh, so the process starts in September? We'll start closing in September. And the reason for that is to give advance warning. And also because today we're announcing a partnership with OnPost, which will enable all Bank of Ireland customers to be able to do counter transactions at any one of their circa 1,000 outlets. Um, And it's important to, to, this isn't a cost takeout. This is about putting our resources and investing where our customers want to bank with us. So um, even before the pandemic, two years before the pandemic, the number of people visiting branches was down by a quarter. In the last 12 months, it's now gone down by a half. And it's over 60% down in the branches that we're closing. And in direct contrast, we've seen massive kick up in digital usage, um, including um, really good take up of our new mobile app. And there is a significant demand for digital, but at the same time, there are still a lot of people, particularly elderly people, who still use the branch network. And given that their movements are restricted at the moment, I know it will be six months' time, but they will still need bank branches. Absolutely. Um, So we are very mindful of the impact of of this news um, on some some local communities. Um, I don't think the increased use of technology is a surprise, but when it kind of impacts your local branch, it's obviously um, a disappointment. Um, And that's why we're ensuring that no town or village where we operate uh, will be left without access to financial services or cash. So the average distance of an on-post outlet to the branches we're closing is 500 metres. Their opening hours are actually slightly longer than ours were in the branches. Um, And just to give you an idea, the branches we're closing weren't being used um, so much. So three out of four of the customers of those branches hadn't set foot in one of those locations in the last year. So it just gives you an idea of just sort of the quantum of that shift. Um, But Uh, we recognise there are elderly customers who will be concerned. We've got a hotline for older and vulnerable customers. And I would also say, because of the ease of use, the take-up of digital by customers over 60, 65 is actually um, higher than you may think. Um, so half of our customers over 65 are registered online um, and two-thirds have done a transaction in the last uh, 90 days. So now, they're, um, they're, yeah, when, when are we ageist? Okay, sure. There, there was a, a voluntary redundancy program which the bank launched a few months ago and was oversubscribed. But will there be compulsory redundancies as part of this process? There will be no compulsory redundancies as part of this process. So 200 people, um, colleagues, um, obviously are impacted. We're speaking to today. Um, they have choices. They can go, um, if they want to work in another branch, they can work in another part of the business. And obviously, new ways of working means people have more access to jobs in different locations. Or if they choose, they can take voluntary redundancy. Um, but there's no compulsory element to any um, of the announcements we're making today. And uh, on the services that the post office will offer, will will it be a full range of services? Will there be deposits, uh, withdrawals, uh, importantly? 
Yes, yes. So if I look at the most common reasons that people will go into a branch, it's cash withdrawal, cash lodgement, check lodgement, coin lodgement. Um, obviously, the, the, the cash um, and check um, is available um, um, in, and also coins in, in many of the on-post outlets. And what we see is that, that now, these now represent less than 3% of transactions in the branches that we're closing. Um, there are some transactions that you know people will want to do by telephone or online or in a nearby Bank of Ireland branch, but we feel that we're giving a really compelling alternative to customers if they do want to still go and use, you know, do a physical transaction. But what we're seeing from customers of all ages is that demand is, is continuing to reduce. Presumably, in light of this news, the bank is not interested in taking on Ulster Bank branches. But uh, can you confirm, is the bank in any discussions with Ulster Bank about loan books or other aspects of its operations? So you'd understand, Brian, I can't comment on any ongoing transactions, um, sort of premature also to comment on what the final outcome may be. I think it's important that we recognise there are a lot of Ulster Bank customers who are feeling uncertain about what this means for them. At Bank of Ireland, we are the largest, uh, the leading lender to corporate islands. We have over 50% market share of SME lending flows in the last seven years. So we're very well positioned to support customers um, who, who do want to look at alternatives and to capture some of the, the growth that will come out of that change. But it is regrettable to see, even though they are a competitor, to see a bank with such a history leaving, um, leaving the country. I think that does reflect on how challenging European and Irish banking is right now. And it, it strikes me there's some towns now that will be left, presumably later this morning when the announcement uh, comes from yourself, that will be left with, with no bank branch perhaps because an Ulster Bank and a Bank of Ireland will be gone. Um, that, that's not the case. Um, so there's actually only nine locations that we're closing later this year where there's an Ulster Bank branch. I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't, haven't heard Ulster Bank uh, making any announcements about sort of any branch closures. Of those nine, um, two are in colleges, and I think you know um, college students bank very differently from from branches. Four are in Dublin with really good coverage of alternative um, branches, and the remaining three are in locations where there's another um, bank operating. So um, I, I don't, I don't think that is a um, going to be a, a, an issue for customers um, uh, being left without any branch. Could I ask you about negative interest rates? Sure. Uh, you're already levying it on corporate and institutional customers. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about it being transferred to retail deposits at a very high level. Are there any plans from Bank of Ireland on that front so far? Yeah, so I mean, we've been living with negative interest rates since 2014, and we've increased the application to non-retail deposits. So now about 22% of non-retail deposits have an, a negative interest rate. We are that um, we are expanding that program. Um, we will, you know, we we, we have um, businesses that have balances over 2.5 uh, million euros who attract a, a, a negative interest rate. We're looking at that threshold. It may go down to 1 million. Um, we're not looking at applying negative interest rates to your, you know, your typical retail type customer but where we see very large deposits the cost of holding those is actually not sustainable not to pass on and the whole idea of this monetary policy is to encourage businesses to invest um, and high depositors um, so it to, will to, be charged on high over. retail deposits uh, Francesca uh, no not on, not on the, the sort of your typical small retail deposits but when we're talking about deposits that are 2.5 million euros plus um, then we are looking at um, potentially expanding negative interest rates to, to the very large deposits Depositors. And retail customers that have that very large deposit, albeit um, very few. Well, very, very few. I mean, that would be really in the high net worth individual space. Um, but it, it is a, just a reality that there's a cost for, for holding on to very, very large deposits um, that we haven't passed on for a number of years. Um, but now um, many banks in Europe are. Francesca McDonough, Chief Executive of Bank of Ireland, thank you very much. <laughs> 
Back to Limerick now, where three men were arrested after Garthy broke up a street party last night. It happened at College Court in Castle Troy, close to the university. 30 fines were also issued to people for breaching public health restrictions. We can talk now to Elena Sekas, who is Labour councillor with Limerick City and County Council. Uh, councillor Sekas, good morning and welcome. Your reaction, your thoughts on what took place last night? Good morning. Uh, yeah, uh, it is very unfortunate. I was very sad to see what happened there last night and I don't think that's acceptable. Um, it's 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 so disheartening for the local community, for the local residents uh, and it shouldn't happen. Is it something that has been a regular occurrence? Well, there would have been incidents in the past, but uh, this um, would have been the largest incident I would have seen. Um, and residents in the area, you know, have raised concerns uh, recently enough about public health, um, um, you know, uh, due to large volumes of students moving into the area during this last lockdown. And they, they they don't feel safe any longer outside their front or back doors. And such behaviour is unacceptable uh, and is not helping at all. The university has said that they will take strong disciplinary action against any student who has breached public health guidelines. Would expulsion be too harsh? Well, the UL say that all students at UL are subject to a code of conduct, you know, and they will take action, as you say, with strong disciplinary measures. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think uh, what the UL president should do now is to communicate to all students that zero tolerance will apply um, starting from today. Uh, they need to establish some strict rules. And those rules must be enforced because otherwise I don't see how they will discourage such behaviour in the future. Um, so, uh, you know, what happened last night there, um, students have to realise that they will have to um, assume the consequences of their actions. Should accommodation leases, though, have been cancelled before the term restarted in the new year so that no students were there to begin with? Well, uh, as far as I know, um, UL asks students not to travel to Limerick if their programmes were full online. Uh, But government deemed travel for education as essential during this lockdown and many students have travelled to live in Limerick in off-campus accommodation. And the reason for that um, would be the better broadband connectivity and better studying conditions. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, that I understand it is very hard for students. And, you know, um, they, they should be accommodated if there is a need there. But they have to understand that there is a responsibility. They have a responsibility to play their role in this pandemic. They have a responsibility to be respectful to the local community if they come to live um, here. And um, they, they, they have a responsibility to abide by the public health guidelines. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much for talking to us, and and we're grateful that your ringtone is is nice and gentle. It's it's, it's not startling us too much this morning. Elena Sekas, Labour councillor with Limerick City and County Council. The Department of Foreign Affairs describes the humanitarian crisis in Yemen as the worst in the world, with 20 million people in need of assistance. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres warned that Yemen is now in imminent danger of the worst famine the world has seen for decades. 
BBC international correspondent Aura Gearin has been reporting from Yemen in recent weeks. Many teachers in Yemen haven't been paid their government salaries in years. At this school, some don't turn up anymore. In one of the classrooms, we find a substitute. Ahmed Ragib, a nine-year-old in a blue shirt, is taking the class. We're told he's the best student in the school. He's full of character with a ready smile, and he has been blind from birth. We caught up with Orla Gearin within the last hour, and she told us more about life in Yemen for Ahmed and his classmates. Well, it's hard to overstate how extreme the needs are in Yemen, even before the conflict began, uh, or before the conflict escalated, and that's six years ago now. Uh, This was already the poorest country in the Arab world. What has happened since then during these long years of war is that basically the economy has collapsed, the currency has collapsed, food prices have risen by about 140%. So people who were struggling before really have no resources now. And one of the casualties of the war that we looked at on on this trip is is education. One in five schools across the country are out of use, and about a half a million children are out of school because of the conflict. But we were told about a school where people, where students were, were being taught in incredible conditions, and we were told that this was basically a shell. So we thought we were prepared for what we were going to see, but... When we came around the corner that morning, myself and my colleagues, and actually saw the building, everybody's jaw hit the ground. It's very hard to capture in words exactly how bad the state of the place is. The building is basically a kind of a latticework of crumbling masonry, but several hundred children arrive every morning. They gather in the schoolyard, they have morning assembly, and then they file into the rubble and literally sit down in the ruins. I mean, there are no walls. Uh, there are no chairs, no doors, no floors. Uh, it looks completely unsafe. As we were standing there, and, and there are children in the upper story of this building, we were actually saying to ourselves, is it even safe for them to be upstairs? But this is where they study. This is all they have. And the headmistress said to us, look, we have two terrible choices here. We can either teach in these conditions or we can deny this generation an education. So we choose to carry on with the danger. And this is a school that is in a frontline area. While we were filming there, we could hear uh, gunfire in the distance. And and our main interviewee, Ahmed, who is a wonderful nine-year-old boy who I think has, has really touched hearts around the world, as we were filming with him, he responded to the sound of gunfire. Uh, And Ahmed is remarkable in in many ways. He is a stand-in teacher at the school. When teachers don't turn up, he he gives classes. And he has been blind from birth, but he is an extraordinarily resilient young boy. And then we have the kind of scale of child mortality that exists in Yemen at the moment. Every 10 minutes, uh, a child dying from disease in the country. Given the scale of the humanitarian crisis there, Orla, why do you think the UN donor conference failed earlier this week with pledges of just over uh, 1.3 billion euro, less than half uh, the nearly 4 billion needed to finance this year's life-saving programmes. And the aid promised this year is less than the aid promised last year and less than the aid promised the year before. I mean, I, I think the UN is up against a few factors. Undoubtedly, the global pandemic has had, a, has had a disastrous effect on economies around the world. It has made governments think about their priorities Uh, For many, it may be easier to cut aid at a distance 
uh, cut support for, for people far away than cut programs in their own country. I think there is also, um, terrible as it is to say it, I think there is also international fatigue with Yemen. Uh, the conflict is about to enter its seventh year. Uh, it has it has become one of those intractable features of the international landscape. Uh, and I think there is another important factor, which is that an awful lot of the suffering and the humanitarian need in Yemen is basically hidden from view. It's extremely hard to go there. I mean, many international organizations, not just the BBC, are committed to trying to cover that story. Uh, you need to plow in an awful lot of time. This, this is my sixth trip to the country um, since the conflict escalated in 2015, but this trip actually took almost two years to arrange. So I, I think it's a combination of things, but it's, you know, it's impossible to overstate uh, how much aid is needed. This really is a matter of, of life and death, and it's, it's life or death soon. Uh, the UN has been warning for months that there is a danger, an imminent danger of famine on a scale the world, has, the world hasn't seen for decades. Uh, it has said Yemen is falling off a cliff. It has said there is a danger of people starving. In fact, it says 2.6 million people are currently a step away from, from famine. Now, these are words the UN doesn't use lightly and the international aid community doesn't use lightly. There is a very technical definition to be met for famine. But definitely that's, that's on the horizon as far as the UN is concerned. So aid is needed. Orla, you've reported from several conflicts in your career. How does this one compare? And were you worried for you and your crew's safety while you were reporting there? No, we didn't have safety concerns. And I have to say this time the situation on the ground was, was more um, quiet, if I can put it that way, than during previous trips. Um, so we, we were not uh, in any sense really worried for ourselves. I and mean, then we were in some frontline areas, including in the city of Taiz. But the great risk in these places is always for the civilians who are living there day in and day out. Uh, one of the reasons we went to Taiz, which is almost a besieged city, uh, is that we had heard about children who were being deliberately targeted by Houthi snipers. And we went and we met children, including a, re a remarkable little girl who was shot in the head and survived, who was deliberately targeted by a sniper. So the risks in these areas are always for defenseless civilians, for women and children. And, and in that situation in Thais in particular, there have been hundreds of attacks in recent years, literally hundreds of attacks documented by local human rights workers where children have been deliberately targeted by snipers. And these are the kind of stories that generally don't tend to be told because people can't get in to report on, on the real horror of what is happening in Yemen. BBC International Correspondent Orla Gearan. And as we've been hearing, the government is backing a proposed bid by Ireland and the UK to host the 2030 FIFA World Cup. The proposal involves a plan for the five football associations in Britain, Northern Ireland and the Republic to join forces to host the elite tournament. Minister for Sport, Jack Chambers, good morning. Good morning, May. Now, I know there's a long road ahead in this, but, but uh, it is exciting that even a, a, a slice of the 2030 World Cup might visit our shores. How did the proposal idea come about? Did Boris Johnson reach out to Michal Martin or has it come through the football associations? Yeah, this has been discussed, discussed now for a considerable period between the respective uh, football associations and, and there's also been contact between officials across the 
two governments uh, on the feasibility of such a bid. So I think the announcement from uh, Prime Minister Johnson uh, last night is, is really positive. It shows that uh, the British government is embracing this and the Irish government will also embrace this in a really uh, positive way. We have a huge footballing community in Ireland and I think the fact that the, the strength of the, the five nations and the five football associations coming together uh, to, to try and work and collaborate on the feasibility of such a bid is really important. So this year we'll uh, we'll progress significant work on, on the whole feasibility process and then FIFA next year would open uh, the, the process for any submission of a bid which can be submitted between 2022 and 2024. Um, so we are at an early stage of this process but the fact that uh, we have an ambition across the two islands um, to try and work together uh, to bring uh, the biggest football, big, one, of the, one of the biggest tournaments in the world uh, to our shores, I think is really positive. Uh, and we'll do everything we can to work with the different football associations and the British government uh, to, to try and advance this in a really positive way. Okay, I, I appreciate it. it's early days and it is the centenary World Cup, so the competition will be, will be pretty fierce. Uh, feasibility, of course, costs money. So what is the government putting up? Yeah, so just say we, we have a major events division in the Department of Sport, which came from the emanated from the the bid which was made for the Rugby World Cup, which you'll know about. Um, so we had a budget allocated of six million euro uh, in in last year for this uh, and we'll be pur- purposing a significant amount of that uh, into our engagement and collaboration with the uh, with the British government uh, the exact uh, amount that's required in terms of the feasibility process still is being worked through um, but we won't be found wanting when it comes to putting our best foot forward in the whole feasibility and viability process of this bid um, I think it's something that we can be incredibly positive about uh, we've obviously significant experience from the Rugby World Cup bid and we'll also work with the football associations in in trying to work out the logistics, uh, the the economic benefits um, and, and trying to bring something of this scale to our shores. Okay, what, what, and early days, but what would you envisage here? It'll be an All-Ireland event and you would want to take it out of Dublin where you'd have the Aviva and you'd have uh, um, Croke Park, but uh, significant stadiums in Cork... Uh, with with Parky Cueve in Limerick as well, with the Gaelic grounds and Thoman Park. That's right, and, and you, we'd need obviously uh, significant cooperation, and there is great cooperation anyway between uh, the different uh, governing bodies of sport, and, and that's why, the, as I've said, the feasibility process is so important. So you have to uh, work through the various stadia. You also have to bring regional benefits uh, to such a bid. And I think all towns and cities across. Uh, north, north, south. We'll, we want to have a, a an input and an involvement in this, and so that's the that's the type of work now that will be ongoing. As I said, we have time on our side for this to progress and advance the detail behind the uh, the feasibility work. And uh, and you mentioned some of the stadia there, and there the that's the type of uh, work now that will have to be go through detailed uh, feasibility as well as working with the British government on uh, on what stadia they'll be putting forward. Uh, would you be confident that? The, the, the FAI, with all of the problems it has had over the last year, uh, is in a position to push forward with this? Well, in fairness, the FAI, they're progressing a lot of governance and organisational reforms. They have a fresh start now um, and we've had a very positive relationship with them, certainly since I've uh, entered office. And I think I think from a 
you know, the footballing family want to see both the FAI and the Irish government uh, bring uh, and 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 attempt to bring uh, such a major event to our shores. Um, and I think they have the capacity, the drive, um, and the ambition uh, to do this. And I think the joint statement between the five football associations last night demonstrated that, as well as the statement from. Uh, Prime Minister Johnson and uh, we'll do everything we can to work uh, with the various football associations and with the uh, British government to put our best foot forward. We'll have significant uh, competition for this as you can imagine uh, Mary from, from a European perspective but also the international dimension as well so okay. um, it, it will need significant work over the coming uh, period. Uh, and elsewhere of course to horse racing horse trainer Gordon Elliott dominating headlines for all of the wrong reasons after that photograph of him sitting astride a, a dead horse. What is your reaction uh, to what we saw and, and to where this goes from here now? Well, I was absolutely shocked, appalled and horrified uh, by uh, by that photograph. Um, it showed a complete and profound error of judgment uh, and it was really disturbing from an animal, animal welfare perspective. I think everyone across the country and even internationally uh, who saw that photo was was shocked, uh, and I think there has to be he has to be held fully accountable for his actions, and there needs to be. And I know there is an investigation by the Irish Horse Ra- Racing uh, Regulatory Board, but it is is important from an Irish perspective uh, from that we have the highest welfare uh, standards. And someone myself who grew up with with animals, and I think anyone whether they did or they didn't, uh, was shocked by that. And I think consequences are important uh, and he, uh, he needs to be held uh, fully accountable. Uh, fully accountable by that, do you mean up to and potentially including a ban? I think everything should be on the table. Um, I think Ireland has to set a high bar when it comes to animal standards. Um, we're, we're talking about, a, we're talking about a, a dead horse here. Uh, and I think, um, you know... It, it, I found everything that has been said so far um, doesn't explain what what everybody saw, uh, and I was really, really disturbed by it. And I think uh, you know there has to be full follow through, uh, and everything should be on the table to make sure there's accountability and a high bar set for anyone who wants to work work with animals in this country. Pope Francis arrives in Iraq in a couple of hours, the first visit by the pontiff to the country that has suffered years of war and terrorism and where the Christian community, one of the oldest in the world, has endured so much violence. Pope Francis called them a martyred church ahead of today's visit, which we'll hear more about now from Sophia Barbarani, a journalist in Baghdad. And Sophia, that phrase, a martyred church, tell us why this papal visit is so significant to that church. Good morning. Yes, this is uh, an incredibly significant visit and one that's been a long time coming. Um, The Vatican finally considered the situation in Iraq to be good enough for the Pope to visit following the defeat of ISIS a few years ago and then the dwindling of of last year's social unrest. Um, It's an important visit because there uh, there are a series of factors that come with it. Primarily, um, it's the Pope... Uh, the Pope's show of support towards the Iraqi Christian minority, a community that over the past decade or so has dwindled considerably from about 1 million pre-2003 
to an estimated 250 to 400,000. So it has, it has really shrunk to a very small number as a result of uh, various things, including religious persecution at the hands of, of ISIS um, after they rose to power in 2014, uh, and also dire financial situation here in, in Iraq. Many of them have decided to leave the country to find uh, a better life, um, to find employment. Um, and so there's a lot of hope among the Christian community that this visit will not only give them more hope to stay in the country and not leave, but also shed light on, on their situation um, internationally. And of course, that means there's lots of sim symbolism, doesn't there, in the Pope's itinerary. Um, talk to us about the visit to Our Lady of Salvation Cathedral today. Yes, um, like you say, it's the symbolism of, of that meeting will be huge. Um, so Pope Francis is scheduled to go to Our Lady of Salvation Church in Baghdad uh, at around 4 p.m. local time, where he will be meeting with uh, members of the church and followers. This church is uh, cathedral is particularly important uh, because of its history. So in 2010, there was a uh, Al Qaeda linked massacre inside this church where uh, more than 50 people were killed and at the time it was described as the worst massacre of Iraqi Christians uh, ever um, and so by going there um, Pope Francis is definitely acknowledging the pain of this community uh, mm -hmm. and hopefully healing um, some of the the pain that, that the survivors still feel I spoke to to one of them um, a few months ago actually and and he did say that that while he was uh, he was happy to hear that Pope Francis was coming to Iraq and uh, and visiting the church, he uh, he felt that it was a little too late, and he would have he had hoped that a pope would have visited uh, right after the massacre happened. How is uh, security being handled for this visit, and also COVID, the risk of super spreading events? There's going to be a, a mass, isn't there, at a stadium in Erbil? Yes, that's correct. The last day um, we'll see a, a mass in a stadium where I believe uh, something like 10,000 people are set to, uh, are expected to, to attend. Now, authorities say that they have it under control, that they will be able to implement social distancing, uh, mask wearing. But at the end of the day, this is, this is a huge and emotional event. Emotions will be running high. Um, the crowds will be huge. I don't see how they will be able to impose social distancing, to be completely honest. And Iraq has had a spike in coronavirus cases over the past few weeks, um, so much so that the country has gone into a, uh, a full lockdown for three days and, uh, and then partial lockdown the rest of the week. Um, so that is definitely a concern, particularly because whilst the Pope and his entourage have been vaccinated, uh, Iraqis have yet to be vaccinated. Uh, the vaccines only arrived to the country a few days ago. Um, and then in terms of, of security, 
There has been an additional, um, uh, about uh, thousands of, of, of additional security personnel deployed across Baghdad, the capital, and across the country to protect the pontiff. Um, there has also been a considerable dwindling in attacks uh, across uh, Baghdad over the past few years. And so I would, I personally think that the main, uh, the main worry during this three-day trip is actually uh, coronavirus and, and the possible spreading of it across, across Iraq. We must leave it there, but thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. Sophia Barbarani, journalist in Baghdad, on the Pope's visit there, which begins in a couple of hours. AIB is to buy back Good Body, the stockbroking company it sold during the depths of the crash. Under the deal, executives at Good Body won't be subject to the same pay restrictions in place at AIB. Now, you'll recall that these were introduced after the bank was bailed out by the state. The opposition say this is unacceptable. We're joined on the line by Labour's finance spokesman, Jed Nash. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. What are your concerns? Well, you know, ordinarily um, people wouldn't be uh, too interested in how a stockbroker's or wealth management agency runs its operations or whether or not their staff receive bonuses. But with the purchase of AIB and Good Bodies uh, by uh, a by uh, by, I'm sorry, with the purchase by AIB of Good Bodies, this really now is a serious matter of public interest because, uh, as uh, as your listeners know, um, the state owns seventy one percent, and the minister is a very significant shareholder, the majority shareholder in AIB. So it really is a Matter of public interest that, you know, for the first time since the bank bailout, and there's very good reason to introduce caps on bankers' pay and on bonuses, uh, we have now seen a Minister for Finance sign off on a bonus regime in a financial entity that effectively the state now owns. But why should staff lose out because the company they work for is bought by another company? Well, I've heard those arguments. I generally would be the first person to defend a transfer of undertakings and respect the terms and conditions that people Mm. have uh, when their jobs are transferred over to another entity. But we're in a very unique set of circumstances here. Um, The Irish banking system is going through a very tumultuous period uh, and we have a dull debate today secured by myself on the future of Irish banking in the context of what has happened in terms of the exit of Ulster Bank uh, and the announcement of bank branch closures by uh, Bank of Ireland. Uh, The fact is that this entity is being owned uh, both by a state-owned entity, AIB, um, an entity that um, is a very significant player, of course, part of what might be described as duopoly in the Irish banking market, and different rules ought to apply. And my concern here is, and I think the concern of the Irish people will be, that this is the re-entry of a, a bonus culture in banks that have sunk our, our, uh, this economy uh, just over a decade ago, and we don't want to see the return to that kind of risky behaviour that was encouraged by excessive speculation and excessive risk-taking. Is it fair to say that, though, because the Minister for Finance said yesterday that there'd be no change in overall government policy on the pay cap? So do you not believe him? Um, th- this is a, a matter of real public importance and it will be interrogated in the Dáil uh, later on today. Uh, the Minister does say that this uh, will be ring-fenced, it will only apply to good body staff. We also know that it, w- it will apply to AIB staff who will be transferring from time to time over to the new entity. The truth of the matter is, and the facts on the table are very, very clear, this is a state-owned entity and for the first time now since the introduction of the uh, 
cap on bankers' pay and on the effective disincentivization by the introduction of an 89% levy on, 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 on these kinds of incentives. This is the first time any Minister for Finance since the crash has signed off on, on these kinds of bonuses and the principle of these kinds of bonuses. And we feel that this could potentially be a Trojan horse where there will be a queue of bankers uh, in state-supported banks queuing up outside the Department of Finance looking for uh, similar treatment. And there's no argument and no persuasive argument whatsoever uh, for that uh, bankers' pay cap to be lifted. Uh, or indeed for these kinds of incentives to be brought back into the Irish banking uh, and finance landscape. Can we talk about another stockbroking company? Um, as you mentioned, Pascal Donoghue, he's also asked for a public statement from Davy <coughs> Stockbrokers, which people will know that the company was fined by the central bank yesterday for breaching market rules. Is that something you'd like to see, a public statement from them? Absolutely. Um, they haven't made a public statement as of yet, and I think they have a responsibility to do so. Um, this, uh, really what it is, uh, Rachel, is a, a very costly nixer that will end up costing the company €4 million. Euros. Uh, the details are quite extraordinary, and the central bank investigation uh, showed real lax internal controls in Davy compliance issues and very serious conflict of interest issues that I, I think are of real public importance uh, and shows the kind of culture that can be created in an organisation like that and I think answers my question in relation to incentives and risk taking um, and, and, and I think we need to look at it uh, in that context um, but the question I would have uh, for the central bank would be this uh, where does the responsibility here end is it just a matter for Davies or will the central bank be pursuing uh, individuals in regard to uh, this particular issue because the truth is um, the Minister for Finance now for three to four years has spoken about introducing what's known as a senior executive accountability regime making sure that individuals that take damaging decisions in financial entities that they are held personally liable we are still waiting for that legislation to be brought forward and that is really important in terms of uh, ensuring that um, you know good behaviour is promoted and encouraged uh, and indeed that the you know watchdog is doing their job the central bank have issued the fine to Davies but the question now is will anybody be held personally responsible and will this be a matter that will attract the attention of Angarda Shikana you also want, in relation to another financial institution, you want Bank of Ireland to hold off on its decision to close branches. But it says that decision is a straightforward one. Not enough people are using those branches. Well, it's very interesting the kind of metrics that uh, Bank of Ireland used to inform their decision. They said in their public statement uh, earlier on this week uh, that uh, footfall in bank branches has reduced dramatically over the last 12 months. Of course it has because the bank itself, in order to comply with public health guidelines initially, uh, shut most of their branches. And in fact, mm. Well, to uh, be uh, fair, they say that even before that there was an issue. Yeah, and we understand that banking is changing and that's entirely understandable. The problem I have is that the regime we have in this country in terms of changes to bank opening hours and changes to bank services, you're only required to notify the central bank, uh, you know, within two months of making those decisions. And the truth, you know, the reality is across the water, that's a 12-month period and there's a requirement to engage in very deep um, public consultation uh, and impact assessments to understand what the impact of bank branch closures would be in a community. No such obligation exists in Ireland. We would ask that in the context of the situation we're in at the moment, very serious pandemic, and where no bank can really properly assess the impact on their business uh, and footfall in real terms, in normal terms, that banks would um, pause those decisions for the time being uh, until such time as we can have a proper assessment of the state of Irish banking. And in order for us to do that, uh, 
uh, I believe we should establish a forum on banking to look holistically at the kind of banking system that we should have in this country and the kind of banking system that can support our economic recovery and support not just bankers' pay, not just bankers' bonuses. It should not be a regime that is simply you know, a landscape that is formed by the views of bankers, but a landscape that's formed uh, by the views of everybody, consumers, customers, uh, bank workers, uh, and many, many others with an All interest right. in a successful banking model in this country. Jed Nash, thank you for joining us this morning. Now, turning uh, to events in Dublin at the weekend. It was an illegal gathering that turned into a riot, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, said. On Saturday, anti-vaccine, anti-mask and anti-lockdown protesters gathered outside a closed St. Stephen's Green. Ugly scenes developed with fireworks shot at Garthi. And when the crowd was dispersed from the Grafton Street area, some reassembled at the GPO. Three Garthi were injured and over 20 protesters arrested. The protest was organised through anti-lockdown face Facebook groups where conspiracy theories and disinformation about the pandemic thrive. Mark Tai is a Sunday Times journalist. He saw some of what unfolded on Saturday. And Kiran O'Connor is an analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a London-based think tank concerned with extremism. Mark, you were following what was happening on social media and, and you uh, witnessed some of what unfolded. Will you describe some of those scenes and what some of the protesters were saying to you? Yeah, hi, Mary. Um, so we've been tracking in the Sunday Times kind of the, the Facebook groups that have been blossoming over the last couple of months, um, really, that they've, you know, the, the huge growth in these in these groups are anti kind of um, lockdown, who are COVID sceptical. And, um, you know, since January, they've been plotting this uh, uh, Unite the Tribes event for the end of February. And um, we could see then on Saturday, I was watching on social media, um, they saw that the uh, St. Stephen's Green was being locked, it was closed off, that's, that's where they were due to assemble and um, you know, on the Telegram groups, the social media app, we could, I was watching live as uh, people were kind of readjusting the plans as the, the assembly point was kind of locked off to them. So um, when, when the speakers started um, making their speeches, you know, I, I was listening in on Telegram and you could hear some of the fireworks being fired then and bottles being thrown. And straight away on Telegram, you know, um, the, among the groups that were organising this, they were saying, oh, this is Antifa who are, who are um, causing this trouble and at, at that point I went into town myself to, to keep an eye on what was happening so I, I, I'd seen the videos of the, the fireworks being shot at the Gardaí um, when when I arrived, the you know that was after the the fireworks had been shot and they'd been they'd moved down to the GPO on a street was completely closed off. There was there was over a thousand people there, um, many you know wearing tricolours, holding up signs, blaming the media, uh, RTE for, for spreading the virus of what they said was fake news, creating fear about uh, with the pandemic, and this was kind of mimicking what was being posted on, on all these uh, social media groups over over the last couple of months, you know. Um, very much saying that the pandemic was part of a global conspiracy to uh, involving George Soros and, and Bill Gates to create a new world order where people are scared to, to, to have to use um, the, their, their credit cards, sorry, their electronic payments where they can't use mm -hmm. cash payments. Um, a series of, 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 of conspiracies and I, that was there where I kind of spoke to some of the people who were at the protest. You, you, yes, you quoted some of them, didn't you, as, as telling you uh, that the, they believed that, that 
babies are being killed and harvested for adrenochrome so that RTE celebrities uh, could continue to look young. Uh, corpses buried under the children's hospital, the government infested with paedophiles uh, and 5G, the, the cause of COVID, something we've heard before. Were they toying with you or did they actually believe this nonsense? Yeah, there was a, there was a, there was a, a pair of ladies there outside the GPO. Um, one of them was holding um, a flyer from the National Party. Um, I saw them wearing these hoodies, you know, on the back saying Orti had sold their souls. There was a, a typo on their, on their, uh, you know, there was misspelled. And I just drew, drew my eye. So I went over to speak to them, asked them, could I take a photograph of them? And, uh, you know, they were, I was just asking them, why are you here? Um, as, as you say, they set out this, this wild conspiracy theory, which is basically a kind of a, a resetting of um, a conspiracy theory that is very popular among QAnon followers in America, you know, where, you know, Pizzagate, we've all heard about this mad theory about, you know, where the Democrats and Hollywood stars are involved in this um, conspiracy to, you know, where involved in paedophilia and um, this elixir they, they say there is that exists to keep Hollywood stars looking young. And these two women, they're Irish, they're based in North Dublin, um, with, you know, completely straight face, set this theory out to me, had been readjusted for, for RTE stars and involving the children's hospital. And you know, my jaw dropped, but they're completely straight faced, completely believing this, saying, oh, you have to go on to this. Um, there's a website, BitChute, uh, which is well known for hosting far right uh, speakers and conspiracy theories, saying oh, it's all set out there. Look, we've gone down this rabbit hole. We, this is true. We, we've discovered all this. We're here to educate people. And, uh, you know, they had a number of friends with them there and all straight face saying this is what they actually believe. And it's. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's, Mark, it's, it's wild. Uh, uh, Kieran, indeed. Kieran O'Connor is with us as well. Kieran, you're an analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Uh, we've always had, haven't we, disinformation. What is the difference now? Is it that we have social media which provides such an immediate platform for, for the dissemination of this, of this stuff? Yeah, we have social media, which is set up for uh, for people to kind of coalesce around topics. And what we see this being used in the last year, especially with COVID-19, people are vulnerable. People are looking for simple solutions to a complex time and they're going online and looking for this information within these groups, uh, be it on Facebook, be it also be it on Telegram. There are extremist activists, extremist groups who are muddying the waters, who are using these groups to sow um, division, promote misleading content and, and radicalise people really and, and, uh, towards their own extremist policies and their own ex uh, political objectives. And really it's, it's the use of social media in this way, which is seeing people uh, being radicalised and then the groups are also being used to organise and mobilise protests like you saw on Saturday. Now, once someone ha has gone down the, the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, who, who is living within the echo chambers, how do you get them back out? How, how do you how do you how do you undo some of this damage? Yeah, it's a very difficult task. Um, when people have gone down a rabbit hole, the the one thing that really doesn't work, sadly, is fact-based information, information from news organizations like yourselves or research from organizations like ourselves. Uh, the best methods so far that we've seen are contact from friends and family, uh, helping people to ask their own questions about where the information they're getting is coming from, why it's making them so angry or so emotional, but also friends and family 
turning their loved one towards someone that they might trust. You know, there might be a particular politician that's saying, you know, certain such and such stuff is misinformation or it could be a celebrity or a sports person sending them or turning them towards someone where they would see as a, as a trustworthy figure. But sadly, when people are so entrenched in their beliefs around misleading uh, beliefs or conspiracies, it's very tough to get them out. Now, are you monitoring, continuing to monitor these pages and platforms and what are you seeing in relation to, we're told, uh, another event being planned for Dublin uh, around St. Patrick's Day and an event in Cork, Kieran. Yeah, so keeping an eye on, on these groups and really what events like Saturday can do, they can obviously uh, force people kind of away and, and maybe frighten people from you know the, the violence that, that happened and that escalated from the events on Saturday. But it can also help the, the influencers or the people leading these movements to double down and to push off this then and to organise further protests. We've seen calls for protests on St. Patrick's Day around the same theme, anti-mask, anti-lockdown. And the worry is that, similar to Saturday, that we may see more extremist groups try to use these protests to incite violence and to advance their own undemocratic aims. And Mark, we, we, Leo Varadkar speaking about this yesterday, the Minister for Justice as, as well, and I think he's saying uh, in a statement this morning, you know, he's a believer in, in free speech, but he will be writing to the digital platforms to press them on their responsibility to moderate and remove content that encourages such behaviour. Uh, what is the evidence so far that they have been moving uh, against such pages? Well, it's, it's, it's remarkably little, actually. Um, like the, the Facebook groups that we monitor um, have doubled, more than doubled in uh, users. There's tens of thousands of users on, on and followers on these pages. We'd look at them and we'd find stuff where people like Leo Varadkar, people are advocating that, you know, he'd be hanged or as a traitor, the guards be harmed. Um, we find content like that all the time, you know, based on these wild conspiracy theories. When we bring it to Facebook's attention, they will take it down. But, you know, the Facebook group aren't disabled themselves so the user numbers grow and grow and you know there's, there seems to be very little um, damage done to these pages that are promoting these wild theories so I, I really think it's something Facebook still haven't got a grip on despite all the, the attention that's been brought on and you know despite what happened in the US at the US Capitol attacks on January 6th which were largely, largely organised through through groups on Facebook and, and you know wild conspiracy theories and now what we're seeing um, and I suppose the other thing to point out is like there were people there on Saturday, like some business people have contacted me saying, you know, I was there, I, I'm, I'm frustrated with the lockdown um, and all the, you know, the measures that have been taken. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, the problem is, you know, marches and protests like that are organised. There, there was no kind of, um, um, there was no people out there as stewards, you know, to keep an eye on the, 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 these okay. wilder elements, you know, and that's something that these groups, ha there's no um, presence like that, a moderating right. presence on the on Streets. Mark Ty of the Sunday Times, Kieran O'Connor, thank you both very much. Now, the Duchess of Sussex has said Buckingham Palace could not expect her and Britain's Prince Harry to be silent if it was perpetuating falsehoods about us. It's part of an interview with Oprah Winfrey, which will air in the US on Sunday and in the UK on Monday. And it's expected to detail the couple's short period as working royals together before they step down for a life in the US. Buckingham Palace is now investigating claims the Duchess bullied royal staff. In a clip released by CBS this morning, Oprah Winfrey asks her, how do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? I don't know how they could expect 
that after all of this time, we would still just be silent if there is an active role that the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. And if that comes with risk of losing things, I mean, I've, there's a lot that's been lost already. The firm, Meghan Merkel, speaking to Oprah Winfrey in an interview to be aired this weekend. Johnny Diamond is royal correspondent for BBC News. Johnny, good morning. Good morning, Gavin. Do you know what else was said in the interview? No, we don't. <laughs> We're waiting to find out because the CBS is putting out these sort of dribs and drabs, just a couple of clips so far, these teaser clips. And we understand that um, uh, Harry has talked about how unbelievably tough life had been for him. Um, we understand that uh, there was a, a reference to uh, Meghan being silenced. Um, but that is it, because so far we've had probably a release of about one minute from what we understand will be a two-hour-long programme. But that most recent clip that you played, that CBS put out, what, about three or four hours ago now, is pretty explosive stuff. Two reasons. I mean, one... It's very clear we can expect fireworks. We can expect direct criticism of the royal family, which is always the big question. We, we, we were pretty sure that Meghan and Harry were going to have a, a go at the media. They've made clear that they loathe the British media, uh, in particular the best-selling newspapers in Britain, uh, who they feel they were very hard done by. But it wasn't clear whether they sort of crossed the line and, and criticised the royal family. Well, that makes it pretty clear they're going to. And secondly, we get a, a glimpse into her state of mind, their state of mind. They clearly think that the palace has been and is actively spreading, well, they use the phrase, what, falsehoods uh, about them. Um, and that is their reason for sort of letting rip. Uh, but we don't know how far that goes. Does it mean direct criticism of individual members of the family? Does it mean they're going to start telling tales out of school. Um, it, you know, it's a very good teaser clip because it yeah. does make you think, gosh, I want to watch that. Johnny, for those of us who haven't been keeping up, and even for those of us who have, what's The Firm? Oh, sorry, yeah, The Firm. That that phrase, I think, first came from Prince Philip, the, the Queen's husband, and that is a reference to the royal family and the machinery around it, the the sort of uh, the organisation that other people refer to as the palace, the royal family, the court, whatever you want. Um, there is some dispute as to whether it directly refers to just family members or whether it is the sort of wider palace. And again, that might seem like an unimportant point, but if you're thinking about what kind of things Meghan is talking about there, whether it means that she's going to directly talk about, I don't know, Prince William or the Queen, or whether she's just going to talk about courtiers, um, arguably of less interest and less damaging, we'll have to see. But yeah, the firm generally just refers to the royal family. Uh, before we get on to talking about these bullying claims and the timing of them, are the firm, are Buckingham Palace worried and why? Yeah, I mean, I think Buckingham Palace is concerned about it. I mean, outwardly, they say, look, we're, we are more worried about uh, the status of Prince Philip, the condition of Prince Philip. He's now in his third week in hospital. He's 99 years old. He's got an infection and they're worried about his heart as well. And I think that's probably top of their list of concerns. But yeah, when they're thinking about how the royal family comes across, having 
the couple give an interview and what's clearly a no-holds-barred interview and what is clearly going to include criticism of them, there's no way they wouldn't be concerned about it. Um, they'll be concerned about what's said and how it is said. Um, on the surface, however, when you talk to them, they'll say, look, we've got other things to worry about right now. Does the timing of these bullying claims belie their concern? Well, I mean, it's complicated on the bullying claims. You know, this is past history. This refers to stuff that was going on in 2018 and the allegations that have been made by a series of anonymous sources in uh, the London Times um, is that um, predominantly Meghan, but also Harry acted um, well, in a bullying manner towards people. Um, the allegation is that two members of staff were bullied out of their jobs by Meghan. And it has to be said that around that time, there were an awful lot of stories about Meghan, um, stories coming out of the palace about Meghan being, put it this way, an over-demanding boss. And, you know, a number of staff of the couple did leave. Uh, the interview itself was recorded before these allegations were made. But the, the, the sort of Sussex people, the people around them, the people who are close to them say, look, look at this story. It is an absolute prime example of the palace or a part of the palace briefing against uh, the Duke and Duchess. So, you know, it, it's a complicated and fairly unhappy tale, a, a product of, you know, this being both a, a personal situation, a family with all of its tensions, and we all know about that, but also an official situation because of the place that these individuals occupy or occupied within the British state. And Meghan and Harry are clearly going to deny any claims of bullying families. Eh? Johnny Diamond, thanks for speaking to us. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.